expectations of some kind of breakthrough in the war between Israel and Hamas, the release of hostages, a pause in fighting, those expectations waxed and waned up and down through the week. We'll be talking to someone who has been in the room where it happens, a key Israeli decision maker going back several decades. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Unit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy to Jews on the news. Um, you know, this is the moment of truth for Benjamin Netanyahu. I think the stakes are as high as can be. Hamas is, as we sit here and talk on Wednesday, supposed to reply to the deal, the hostage deal proposed by Qatar and Egypt with the, the American involvement. We will go into politics in a minute, but maybe we should just set the stage on what has been discussed and what this deal actually is. It is the release of 35 to 40 hostages. Uh, we will remind our listeners there are 136 hostages held by Hamas. Israel uh, assesses that 29, uh, possibly more, are not alive, but the rest are. So that is still a large um, number. And 35 to 40 are supposed to be released in this deal. Women, all women, including female soldiers, uh, anyone injured, and men over 60. Israel will agree to a cessation of the military operation for 45 days. Now, there are a few things, and there are very important things, crucial actually, that aren't yet agreed upon. One question, how many uh, Hamas terrorists will be released from Israeli prisons? And what exactly will be the wording about the war itself? Hamas, of course, wants an end to this war. Israel, of course, does want to, wants to eradicate Hamas, and that is when Israel thinks the war should end. So that is very important in where, where we are. And of course, we must mention and I tried to already insinuate to that, Netanyahu is under immense political pressure from his far-right coalition not to release uh, terrorists and not to stop the war. And we're speaking about a deal. Of course, nothing has yet been agreed. There are these outlined terms and the coverage and the words, the signals were up and down through the days of this week, more optimistic, less optimistic as to who would agree, whether they would agree, etc. Just say about Prime Minister Netanyahu, the core of this and this dilemma he has, in the sense that if he says yes to this deal, members of his coalition will bolt from the coalition. And that means not just that he's not Prime Minister, but the fear he has that that leaves him open to going to jail. Crucial thing never to be forgotten, he is on trial for corruption. And there is a kind of immunity that comes with sitting in the prime minister's chair. And that's why he needs this government to continue. Every day in power is a day where he's not in jail. That, I think, colours his judgment of this. Obviously, there is anyway a dilemma. On the one hand, Israelis desperately want uh, hostages home. On the other, they desperately want to see Hamas defeated as a fighting force. And if you get the hostages home, if the price of that is no longer fighting, that means Hamas remain in place. So that is already a huge dilemma. But the question I think there is, you know, an additional question in the case of Netanyahu is, does he even really, and this is awful to put it this way, but does he even really want these hostages back home? Because as long as they're not yet home, he has a justification for continuing to stay there, continuing to stay in power. And it's something that people have been saying on our podcast from the start, which is, a complicating factor here in this war is that you have a leader who is driven not only by the national interest, but by his own self-interest, the need to stay in power. And the problem is, if the war's wrapped up, if the hostages are home, then the demand for elections becomes in some ways impossible to deny. And the, all the signs are that if elections come, He's out. Indeed, you had a poll on your network this very week, which is full of very bleak numbers for him. Netanyahu, in a way, is speaking to his electorate because 50% of the general public that we polled say they don't want to stop the war and they would object to a deal, a hostage deal that would stop the war. 35% said that they are for a hostage deal, even if it stops the war. By the way, obviously, if you ask uh, left-wing voters... 
Uh, the numbers are different, and right-wing voters, the numbers is different. But this is, again, these are the polls. There are a lot of people in Israel who think that this deal is a very problematic one. The dilemma is a real dilemma. Of course, if you add to that uh, a prime minister that is fighting for his political life, I'll just add one more thing to the mix. Remember Benny Gantz's party joining the coalition to sort of have this uh, unity government running the country. Chili Tropel, who is really Gantz's right-hand man, saying... If Netanyahu refuses a deal and we understand his motives to be political motives, we will consider leaving the government. So he has pressure, you know, from every single direction on him. Very interesting that if Gantz would look at that 35% and think that's enough for me, if I get 35% in elections there for me, I can take that risk. That is not quite the position if you're Netanyahu because... Those are his own supporters who don't want this deal. So the politics of this are pretty intense. The numbers in this poll are really interesting because they're very bleak for uh, Netanyahu himself, uh, uh, showing he's hugely unpopular. You'll give us the exact detail, but hugely unpopular in that his own party would get an absolute thorough beating in elections. But if anyone was tempted to read that as somehow the Israeli electorate shifting leftward, they should think again. I think it's your, the case that your poll found pretty well. Four out of 10 Israelis are in favor of re-establishing settlements in the Gaza mm. Strip. And that, to me, it was always, I thought, the far-right position associated with those who gathered at a conference this week, attended by ministers from the coalition, MKs from the coalition, Ben Gvir, Smotrich, all of that crowd you know, licking their lips at the prospect of resettling the Gaza Strip. I would have hoped that that was in a more fringe position. I knew it had some support, but your poll finding 38%, nearly four in 10, favour the re-establishments of settlements in Gaza. So I'm going to say a few things about that. First of all, uh, we are in the middle of a war. And a lot of the sentiment that you're seeing here, and you're definitely seeing in this poll, Israel moving to the right, I would ask all of these questions in six months or in 12 months. I think the answers might be a little bit different. Spoiler alert, Gaza will not be resettled. We can get into that as well. But as you said, I think the the major point in this poll is that Netanyahu's compatibility as being prime minister dives to 29%. It also dives among the people who voted for Netanyahu. So among the people who voted for Netanyahu, last poll, he was 64% at being compatible for being prime minister now is 48%. And that, again, is that Netanyahu's own voters saying this. This is important because when you look at the poll, questions about humanitarian aid, questions about resettlement gas, all these show that the Israeli public, as I said, at the moment is very much at the right, but they are not supporting Benjamin Netanyahu. I, I just want to say one more thing about this uh, conference. In the middle of a war, when Israelis are fighting and dying, Right after the decision made by the ICJ and with the open eye of the United States, it is, I will put it mildly, provocative and counterproductive to do this kind of conference. As we said, especially with some of the people there, their comments were used to justify the claim that Israel had genocidal intents in Gaza. To say nothing of the whole a celebration and festivities, right? When Israelis are still bleeding and dying in Gaza, there are hostages that no one knows when they will come back, if they will come back. It is just incredibly insulting to people and to hundreds of thousands of displaced Israelis who have not yet returned to their homes in the South and in the North to have this discussion at all about new settlements, townships, whatever you want to call them, in Gaza. So this is what happened in Jerusalem, and they have not been slapped down by the prime minister, not at this point, and not, I suspect, in the near future. Yeah, not because he can't, for all the reasons we've said. He needs his coalition to stay together. Often people Uh, say... he did say that his plans are not to... Israel should not resettle Gaza. But that's not much of a slapdown. There are times when you think, my God, is Israel run at the moment by people determined to destroy what remains of Israel's reputation in the world? If you could not, you could not design rather a more eloquent and uh, news generating event than this, if you wanted to make Israel look bad in the eyes of the world. And I know it barely features in their calculations, but the damage the these figures on the far right have done to Israel, you could fill many, many volumes. And this is the latest example of it. So destructive, 
And yeah, I, I'm sure the timing of it could could barely have been worse coming straight after the ICJ. We should talk about attitudes outside the country. I haven't seen polling because I'm talking uh, about global attitudes. But front and centre in that, um, we should highlight, even that happened really very just a matter of hours after our last episode dropped, and that is the interim ruling, the uh, initial set of judgments and the granting of provisional measures in the jargon from the International Court of Justice in The Hague long awaited. This is the case brought by South Africa, accusing Israel of the most serious crime under international law, namely the crime of genocide. And there was one reading of this, which I, from someone who has experience of both Israeli diplomacy and uh, Israel and international law, who said to me that in a nutshell, Israel won the ruling, but lost the narrative. And what they referred to there was, on the ruling, the ICJ did not do what they could have done, which is granted a provisional measure which would, would have essentially been a cease and desist order, a demand for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, they did not say that. They did not say the war must stop. So on that just headline level, there were some who thought that's a win for Israel. The reason why they saw said, but the narrative was a loss, was because the International Court of Justice decided that the South Africa's demand for provisional measures was, in the language, plausible after citing a whole number of Israeli statements from leading Israeli figures, we can get into who those were, and assessments by various UN officials, heads of different agencies. The court found it plausible that the Palestinians in Gaza need protection from acts of genocide. And that is the piece of it that was seized on as being a kind of landmark ruling. Um, you know, obviously, there's a huge amount to say about what the impact of this will be for months, years, and I would say decades. But that's how, you know, the initial gloss on it ab abroad. I'm obviously very interested to hear how it played where you are. You know, I heard one of the people who tend to talk in the name of Israel internationally say, uh, positive development from The Hague and I thought to myself, no, it's not a positive development. Maybe it's the Jewish version of a positive development, which means it could have been worse, which it could have been, right? I mean, we we understand that, that the as you said, it stopped short of ordering a halt to the Gazan war, which would have been a problem. And when the ICJ says that Israel must take all measures to avoid acts of genocide, these are words that if we had talked five years ago, if we had had this discussion 10 years ago, I would say never would anyone put the words Israel and genocide in the same sentence when it's relating to something Israel has been doing. So I think it's very true to say on the legal level, it could have been worse for Israel. And I think Israel realizes that very much. But in the sense of, of the image, it's very, very, very damaging. It doesn't help much that a few days after that, a conference in Jerusalem some of the people who attended it are the very same people who were mentioned in South Africa's case as being people responsible for incitement for genocide, said similar things. Again, in a conference in Jerusalem, the, the conference that we referred to of reselling Gaza, that doesn't help Israel very much. And I think most Israelis noticed that. Um, so yes, it has definitely gotten a lot of attention uh, here. And Israelis were kind of glued to their screens on Fridays to see what the decision uh, would be. I am completely agree, by the way, about those statements. I found it just extraordinary that so soon after the court had said, you have to be careful about language and what you are saying, that the, some of those very same voices on the far right again said things which you know the court will seize on. And remember, this isn't over even um, short term. They demand a report back mm -hmm, to the court month. within mm -hmm. a month. I think those statements yep. will be in that report. The court's judgment was actually based on two things, both of which we've talked about extensively on here, which is one, the question of humanitarian aid, and the other one on the statements that are made by figures on the far right. I thought it was really striking that Aharon Barag, the former chief justice of the court, voted with the majority just on that one thing about the uh, call for humanitarian aid to go through. We talked about that a lot, you and me, on the podcast. We also talked about these these statements 
it seems to me that they were not really persuaded by the argument that uh, the arguments that people put forward that the some of the statements were from people who are not in the war cabinet. They did actually cite in their ruling, for example, the president of the state of Israel, not a figure of the far right, on the contrary, former Labour Party leader uh, Isaac Herzog, and a president, ceremonial head of state. But because of that statement he made where he said, you know, when nobody is a civilian or whatever, no one is innocent, they cited that. There is actually, people, listeners might want to go to look at this, there's a very good, very methodical piece by Yair Rosenberg in The Atlantic, who has gone through chapter and verse on all the different statements and shown how actually when you look at the full wording of Yoav Gallant or Herzog or even Prime Minister Netanyahu invoking Amalek, when you actually look at the full context of what they were saying, they were careful to be talking about Hamas, not Gazans, but the court, I, I'm not sure even though that level of detail was ever put to the court. I watched the Israeli submission over those three hours a couple of weeks back, and I don't think they got into that level of detail. The overall effect, though, or, or impact this had on me, I was just incredibly sad listening to it, because it was the day before Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, and here, sentence after sentence, as you said, was the words Israel and genocide. From a respected platform, this wasn't just some blogger sounding off on social media. This was the International Court of Justice. And saying not what has been widely distorted and in the reporting people have used it to say, ah, the court has said Israel is plausibly embarked on genocide. No, they were much more careful than that. But they did say that Palestinians, it's plausible that Palestinians require protection from a threat of genocide more about what will happen or could happen than what has happened, in, in my reading of it anyway. I found that incredibly sad and depressing. And I realized the reason why is that for my entire lifetime, the notion of genocide and being Jewish is that the one thing we were known of is as victims of the most famous genocide there ever was. The Jewish people were victims of the Holocaust. That is just known. And that creates a kind of moral sense around Jews and in the way they're seen. And now that has been undermined by this, just by the two being said in the same word. So that even people who are not, you know, headbangers, the next day are talking about, well, Israel has now been found to be plausibly embarked on genocide. That undermines, that undercuts, that chips away at something that has been central in the way Jews are seen and have seen themselves for 80 years. And I felt extremely sad about it. I completely are, am on board with the sadness. I felt the same thing. And I felt that we had this, we, we were uh, corresponding on that day and that the word plausible is very important. And uh, it, it, you are definitely right. It's a, it's a future possible reading and not a looking backwards, right? It's the, it's plausible that you will be violating the genocide convention. But that doesn't really matter. In the world that we live in, the word plausible, genocide, and Israel, we're all said together. And in the social media reality, that's it. And so I, I was sad in the same way. I, I'm not sure we uh, allocate blame in the same way. But um, I don't think Israel expected in any way that the, maybe expected or hoped, but it was unrealistic to hope that they would throw out this case and say, wait a minute, whatever is happening here, this is not genocide, right? That was really unrealistic to hope. But that thought that we are left with those words and that anyone could add them together in a way that would make uh, Israel uh, guilty of these things is a terrible thought, is really a terrible thought. Yeah. And, and the way it was worded, and I spoke to legal scholars about this, and they said the trouble is the whole area of plausibility in the international court at the ICJ is anyway a bit vague and a bit nebulous and a bit ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It isn't a hard, it's a low bar you have to clear, by the way, mm -hmm. um, to prove for that it's at least plausible. Uh, right. It's just for the, it's I'm talking about, bar. sorry, I'm talking about all mm -hmm. the law around provisional measures, not the ultimate decision. Mm -hmm. They did right. go out of their way to say they are not making a judgment about the merits of the case, but that got lost in the yeah. sort of media scramble. It, it was always bound to. And instead, it was straight away onto this uh, conjunction of words. I, I think, too, with you, that they're making a point about this notion of a threat, that it is the Palestinians need protection from a possible threat. Look, that's bad enough. 
rather than saying we're making a judgment on what has already happened. Uh, some legal scholars say even that maybe is not quite right. It's more subtle than that. It's a real minefield legally, all this. But the point is, in the bear pit of world opinion, this is now uh, sort of out there and has already been seized on as essentially a judgment by the ICJ on this. I just may mention just one detail. Georg Nolte from the, the German judge has indicated that as far as he's concerned, it's implausible that the idea of military campaign is being conducted with genocidal intent. But he said he voted with the majority because dehumanizing and discriminate language used by Israeli officials causes a risk of future violations of the Genocide Convention. So he's there on that future past distinction. But notice it's those statements, that language, uh, which has got even him, the German judge, and we know that Germany as a country is historically pretty sympathetic to Israel, even he voted with the majority because of that future threat as in, incarnated in the language. I know that your hint about where we think blame lies, I think we might agree that some of those incendiary statements from figures, on the particularly on the far right, have have compounded this problem. They've made it harder at the very least. I think the language was something so easily avoided. People could have been careful in how they spoke about this and were not sufficiently careful. If we are on the topic of, of respectable institutions, I think that what we should say in this week is something that got a lot of focus, not only in Israel, uh, but also internationally, UNRWA, uh, that Israel has been com complaining and accusing for decades, essentially bringing forth evidence to prove that it is a de facto organization under Hamas control, uh, to 12 of their uh, employees taking part, actively taking part in the massacre of October uh, 7th, and a very long list of countries uh, that have been funding this organization now um, suspending uh, their funding. So the story beyond the fact that Israel did feel, I think in a sense, vindicated here, also points to the problem of what do you do in this sort of territory in which there is a terrorist dictatorship, essentially, that any kind of organization would come under this. I'm not trying to excuse them, by the way, but any organization might come under this risk of being, you know, de facto ruled by Hamas, but you still need to feed people. Now, what are you going to do if this is the situation uh, you were in? Yeah, UNRWA being the UN uh, Reliefs and Works Agency, the agency specifically for Palestinian refugees set up yes. since And we should ask the question at some point why there is this just an agency specifically for Palestinian refugees, but but that is not for our discussion today. No, I mean, and, you know, long history. On the one hand, there were people skeptical about the timing. It comes, you know, a day, hours after the ICJ judgment, as if was Israel saying, look over here, this is to distract you from that. There was a, there was some cynicism around that. There was also an initial line of uh, counter argument, which said, ah, oh, but this is just a few bad apples. It's 12 or 13 people. UNRWA has immediately suspended or fired them. You know, that's all it is. Israel's own version came back pretty quickly saying, no, not just a few bad apples, the whole barrel has been spoilt. And they did that via a news story in the Wall Street Journal, which said that it was in the hundreds, many hundreds of unreal people were linked to Hamas. Then, of course, people come back and say, well, where's the evidence? It can't just be on Israel say so back and forth and so on. But I think it goes to your point, there is a real dilemma there for people on the outside, because on the one hand, you think, well, this is wrong if they have these links to Hamas, on the other hand, if they are the only agency on the ground providing aid, what are you going to do? And if you cut them off, aren't you going to just make a humanitarian calamity even worse? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, as you say, lots of people have been saying for a long time that there is a serious problem with UNRWA. People have seen those videos of UNRWA schools where the kids are coming out with all kinds of, you know, propaganda tropes about Israel and indeed about Jews. It's... um yeah, it's obviously a whole mess. Get, the answer is get rid of Hamas, get a functioning Palestinian entity there and have, you know, them take care of it. But I guess that is not in the near uh, future and our cards in the near future. So there are so many questions on the table right now, not only for what the situation on the ground looks like, hostage deal, yes or no, but also bigger pictures about the players in this region, Qatar, Egypt, the United States, Iran, and we have, I think, a perfect guest to talk to about all that. Mm -hmm. 
Zohar Palti was in the room where it happened at every critical defense-related moment for Israel in the past several decades, right up until 2022. Previously, he served as head of the Policy and Political Military Bureau uh, for Israel's Ministry of Defense. Before that, he led the Intelligence Directorate at the Mossad. Today, he is a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Zohar Palti, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for hosting me. Great to be here. We're very glad to have you. As, as the three of us are speaking, speculation has, has been very intense, in some ways sort of just receding. It's going up and down about the possibility of a deal, um, a, a you know potential breakthrough to release the hostages, to pause the fighting, releasing Palestinian prisoners. Lots of talks going on between all the different players. I mean, as we speak, we don't know if that's going to bear fruit, but why now this upsurge of of expectation that there could be a breakthrough? First of all, I think that uh, we have a moral obligation as a free country to bring our people back home. And since day one, this is uh, one of the most, if not the most important uh, mission that our country has. And this government have a lot of responsibility to uh, bring them back home. This is the first. Secondly, I think that there is a momentum in a combat, and it used to be like that uh, in November, and we succeed to bring something like uh, 100 people back home. And right now, after two months from November, all of us feeling that this is the right time to do it. And when there is a momentum and when there is a will, and there was a summit uh, last uh, Saturday in Paris, uh, leading by director of the CIA, Bill Burns, our top officials, uh, Minister of Intelligence of the Egyptians, Abbas Kamel, and the Prime Minister of Qatar. And it seems to me it's launch. That was the kickoff for this uh, new deal. And I hope it will uh, happen. You know these players very, very well. The Egyptians, the Qataris, the United States here. Added to this complicated maneuver and this complicated puzzle is the fact that Israel is in itself uh, kind of embroiled in this internal debate over uh, the hostages situation. It has become very politicized. I guess my first question is, tell us a little bit about what happens in the room in these kinds of negotiations. And secondly, how do you see that debate inside Israel? Um, is it a real debate? Is it just politics? What do you think about that? Politics, I leave to the others. I would try to give an answer as a guy that used to be a professional civil servant that uh, first and uh, the foremost priority is to the security and the safe of the Israeli people, our families, and the Jewish around the world. And by that, when you're getting into the room, you have only one mission, to deliver. And delivering in this case is to bring them back home. All the other calculation, politicians, statesmen, media, and the other ones, it's irrelevant when you're in the room. You have to actually do what you believe, that this is the best thing in order to bring them back home. All the rest, this is smoke. Sometimes you don't listen to all the different noises around you. And you have only one uh, other obligation because the people that are in the room, they are subordinate, they are under the political level in Israel. They will have to bring the hard and the tough decision into a closed room with a very few people from the Israeli cabinet. By the way, it's not all the government, it's not all the cabinet, it's usually between three to four people max. And then we'll have to take the right decision. How are they going to sell it? How are they going to explain it? How are they going to use all the methodology that they are dealing? It's up to them. Mm-hmm. But they will have to take a tough decision over here. I want to just go back to the why now question for this reason, which is in, in your answer, you said that obviously it's the priority of the government and the, the duty of a government to bring its hostages home. Understood. That would have been true from October the 8th onwards. But now, as you know, January turning into February at this moment, what made the sort of stars align from that interest of Israel, that need of Israel's, which has persisted from or, or been there from the start, with the interests of Hamas, Qatar, and so on. I'm just trying to work out how things have sort of clicked into place, if they have, what has changed 
in the recent period that has bring, brought this together. I mean, maybe there's part of it is Israeli politics. We can, in a way, put that to one side. In terms of the other players, why now? We had a couple of missions as a nation. First of all, as the government said, to take the Hamas military capability down. Mm-hmm. They want to destroy Hamas completely, but you can't really destroy an idea over here because this is a different conversation. We're not there yet. It will take a long time. Parallel to the fact that it will take a long time to the IDF to fulfill these missions, there is a timeline over here regarding the hostages. Now, on the balance, on the scales over here right now, you have to take a decision whether you want to fulfill first the first mission to take the Hamas capability down or whether to do a pause, to ease the pressure a bit, to do other stuff in order to bring the hostages back. No doubt that we have outstanding success. The IDF right now, the troops are already right now in the heart, in the core of Hamas in Khan Yunus. And it seems to me that there is a um, tremendous pressure also regarding the Hamas leadership, that they hear the voices upstairs of our infantry uh, and our boys over there with a combination that they understand what's the situation in Gaza. They are also thinking about the implications. There is pressure on the Hamas outside that is sitting in Qatar by the leverage that the Qataris got and the Egyptians. The Egyptians also under stress uh, from the fact that they understand that there might be spillover from Gaza to Egypt over here. America, if I remember correctly, you have something like election this year or something like that. <laughs> and... Um, and it seems to me that the Ramadan is starting like in a, less than a month from now. All these issues together coming to a point that you can draw. It's not like 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 6, but it's give you the sense that uh, this is the right time to do it. Everybody have the interest to do it right now. Um, I, I want to pick up on that for a second and maybe fast forward. Not because of general television news uh, impatience, but just to understand where is this all heading? What is the end game? I know this is a large question, but what is the end game in Gaza? But also, you know, I know that I've met enough Israeli generals in my life to know that they all like to say a crisis is also an opportunity. Is there an opportunity here for something bigger if this ends the way Israel wants it to end? You know, I grew up in Golan, so let's say one by one. I mean, if you ask two very large big questions, one is where we are heading, that this is the tough one. Yeah that I have to think about it. And the other one is whether we have opportunity. I will start with the easy one. Easy, relatively. Okay. Hmm. Um, the opportunities. I see an opportunity over here, but we'll need a courageous decision over here and a state statecraft over here. And I'm not sure that we have it. The most important issue is how we're thinking positive, how we're thinking about the future, how we leave something after this devastating event of October 7, and you know, I, I guess that we'll speak about it later on, that not everything is gloomy. And how to show to the bad guys over here, many Hamas, that they are not going to win. Now, how you do it? By doing peace. If I take the Saudi case, that that was the main issue just a day before October 7, it's still there. The American administration, President Biden, is still there. Mm-hmm. We... And the government of Israel, and mainly the prime minister that used to be very eager to succeed, to bring the Saudis into the Abraham Accords or whatever we call it, normalization, peace, all the definition I can live with them, it's still there. Imagine to yourself that we're in the end of, I don't know, March, uh, May, June, there is a ceremony in the White House with the Saudis. Let's give the best message to the whole the region, to the bad guys, leading by Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah. Guys, no matter what you are doing, there is a trend over here in the Middle East. You can't stop that Israel is part of the region. You can't stop the fact that the Arab countries are willing to sign a peace uh, treaty with the Israelis. And if the Saudi, the largest country in the region, in the Middle East, beside Egypt, is joining this party, I call it a winning. I call it something that we need to proceed and we need to get. This is a a major and a big opportunity over here. Do you, I mean, hearing that, I just wonder if 
you are there or that answer is making the same mistake that the Israeli strategy made up to October the 7th, which was to imagine you could remove or, or to take the Palestinians out of the equation. And you could do the Abraham Accords assumption that you could make peace with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, and you could postpone indefinitely the Palestinian question. And surely the, the one thing that have, we've, the whole world has seen out of October 7th is you can't take them out of the equation. One way or the other, that thing has to be resolved. You can't, you know, the Saudi and uh, Gulf arrangements are, are a bonus, but Israel has to confront that question. And therefore, there has to be a political horizon. And I noticed before you referred to statecraft and that you weren't sure if it was there on the Israeli side. And I do wonder about that. Do you think the people making the decisions in Israel right now at the political level, do they get that? I mean, because so far what we're hearing is Israel's prime minister constantly saying no to the thing that everybody in the rest of the world thinks is essential, which is some kind of eventual promise of Palestinian statehood, independence, however you want to call it. And Netanyahu says no to that. So I will take one word from uh, all the question over here. That's what he's saying now. I'm not sure that he will say it in five minutes from now or in uh, five months from now. And I'm not sure that he will be the one that will have to take. And when I'm judging things, I'm not judging about what's going on right now and who is leading Israel right now. I spoke, you need to ask me about opportunity. That's opportunity that I see. Regarding the Palestinians, so I will be more clear regarding this issue. I was dealing with all the, I don't know, challenges that Israel, security challenges that Israel used to face in the last 40 years. And we used to deal with Iran, with the nuclear Iran, with the Shia militias, with Lebanon, Hezbollah. I'm telling you, based on my experience, the first problem that we have, that we have to sort it out, is the internal Israeli problem. After the internal Israeli problem, that this is a different subject. When I'm coming for security challenges from the outside, the Palestinian issue, this is the first priority. By the way, whether we like it or whether not, this is the first priority of the IDF. And with all due respect, it's not Gaza. It's the West Bank. West Bank, this is the heart and the core of the problem because West Bank is reflecting every inch in, in the Israeli soil. If, God forbid, the West Bank is going right now into turbulence, it's reflecting Jerusalem, Afula, Hadera, Tel Aviv, eh, Haifa, and eh, Beersheba. We saw it in the Second Intifada, and we know it, and we understand it completely. Now, the only issue is, is the political level. They are taking the decision. The security uh, apparatus in Israel used to give quiet in this area in the last 20 years. And that's what, <laughs> that's the mission of the security services and the IDF in Israel. What to do with that? That's a political question. Because I'm not a political figure, it seems to me that this question has to go back to the politicians. But I'm not going and to run out of the question. I'm saying we need to understand that the main problem is the Palestinian issue. Going back to the, in a way, forgive me about, uh, using this word, hallucination of the international community that there will be two-state solution over here in the near future, it's not going to happen in the near future. Why? First of all, it's not because of the Israeli political situation. Gaza and the West Bank are not speaking with each other in the last 15 uh, years. The only communication that they have is through us, through the security services, whether it's the Shabak, whether the military intelligence, or whether other channels that they have. Meaning the Palestinians themselves don't know how to sort it out between Gaza and the West Bank. Now, to speak about the vision of two-state solution, I'm for it completely. That's why I'm saying, let's give a hope and let's try to figure it out. But whether we're going to do it tomorrow morning, mainly after October 7, it took 20 years to the Israeli to recover from the Second Intifada. I'm just pitching an ask and a question right now. How long time it will take us to recover from October 7? I don't know. Decade? Two decades? So what's in the meantime, Zoal? I mean, in the meantime, okay, two decades, 30 years, and then what are we going to see on the ground in, in the West Bank and in Gaza? So first of all, I would tell secret to many Israelis that I saw that dancing that want to go back to Gaza. The Palestinians are not going to vanish. 2.4 million Palestinians in Gaza are here to stay. Not the Egyptians, nobody else is going to take responsibility. They are stuck there. 
and we're stuck with this problem. We have a problem in the West Bank also, because we have a Palestinian authority that is not functioning, that are completely, uh, I don't know, they're stuck in uh, a decade ago. Not young generation, not uh, taking care about education, about uh, healthcare, about decent water supply. They're depending completely about our economy, whether it's Gaza or whether it's the West Bank. We need to see fresh leadership in the Palestinians. I call it the Salam Fayyad type, to find a young generation of Palestinians that used to study in MIT or in London School of Economics or something like that. Just pay them $10 million a year or something like that that they will bring to do uh, good for their own people for a couple of years. We'll work with the IMF and with the international community and to try to build something that is not uh, based on corruptions, uh, stagnations, and other means. The Palestinians have a lot of way in order to gain towards responsibility and accountability. Then we can speak maybe about two-state solution or something like that. Mm-hmm. For the time being, we're not there. Sadly, I'm saying it. I mean, the counter-argument they would say is that the accountability responsibility is very difficult to develop when you're in a situation of, of occupation and, and blockade and those things don't develop. But, but the other point people would say is taking your, your on board what you said about it's not going to happen overnight. And that's understood, I think. But the offer of a political horizon, of hope, of knowing that it could eventually, even if it takes a decade or more, that is the statement that people are not hearing right now, certainly not from the prime minister. And I take your point that he may not be there for that long. But do you think Israel, other leading figures in Israel, including people like you, should be saying, that is where we see this going. That is the horizon. That is what we're committed to. And then it's a question of how we get there. Because right now, those are not the public noises people hear out of Israel. And here, I'm not just talking about the prime minister. As a country, that's not the voice we hear in the rest of the world. And I think it would make a big difference in terms of how the rest of the world sees Israel, but also particularly the Palestinians who are at the moment without that horizon that people speak about. Even if you're right, Jonathan, and I guess you are right in a sense over here, you have to understand that the Israeli right now in a trauma, really. And you can't judge right now that most of the public opinion right now, and even uh, a guy like me are a bit turning into uh, harsh opinions regarding the Palestinians because after October 7, it's okay to speak about um, vision and about things like that, but we still have, you know, 136 people right now suffering in Gaza. We saw what this animal has done to children and to our girls and how they treat uh, Holocaust survivors. And we saw a Palestinian authority that haven't been condemned and uh, glorified. And when you see the polls right now in the West Bank, maybe I should say all the things that you said, but I'm not sure that this is the right time from an emotional point of view for us to come to this point. We are not right now on the Potomac and we are not right now on, uh, I don't know, on the Thames. We are right now in Tel Aviv and we just got mm-hmm. the Kassam missiles and we see the families and... You need to know it's very well because she is the one that is speaking with the family like every night and hear the terrible stories. We're emotionally involved over here. So we will need a couple of more months before we'll speak like you. You know, we keep running back or running into October 7th. And I, you know, you've been dealing with intelligence your whole life. And I wonder since so many conceptions and misconceptions crashed on that day. I'm first of all interested to hear from you what surprised you or what crashed for for you in that we keep hearing the same thing. The information was there, but no one had, no one understood the information. No one interpreted it the right way. Is that what actually happened? First of all, as you said, I don't, I'm not sure that I know till the end, what is the real story over here, Mm -hmm. but no doubt that somebody in Miami asked me a couple of weeks ago, how I feel regarding this issue, exactly like you asked me right now. So the first word that I said um, embarrassment mm-hmm. and a shame. That's what I feel mm-hmm. regarding the intelligence community. Now, it's true that we are one of really of the best intelligence community in the world. 
And we had great success in the last 20 years regarding so many things. That's why it strikes you like a punch in the out of nowhere, in the, you know, in the belly, that you are not ready. What the hell happened that day that we missed it? We'll need to, to investigate in a very profound and deep way what happened over here. If you ask me, um, basically, I'm surprised that I, I didn't saw a young lieutenant, female, or a guy that say, hey, generals, or hey, you, all the senior wise, you're a bunch of idiots. Pay attention. We need to have an early warning. The Hamas is about to do it. Where have been the young generation? This is the most something that I really don't understand. Because us, you know, the people that have the gray hairs and things like that, sometimes we know everything and uh, maybe we're missing something. But the young generation that are so, you know, in Israel, they are so, I don't know even how to, I need to find the right word in order to describe it. This is something that I'm surprised that they didn't wake up us in the middle of the night and said, guys, uh, there is a bell over here. We need to do something regarding October 7th. But there was that uh, young officer in 8200, right, in Shwanima time, that kind of said and wrote, she said that her commanders, that wasn't enough? No, no. You mean really no, ringing no, the no. bell? No, it's not enough. Enough, it's, it's enough is to have uh, documents, uh, this is an alert, mm -hmm. we need troops right now, and things like that. I wanted to add something regarding this issue. I mean, maybe because we've been so good, maybe because we used to rely and depend about the intelligence. By the way, in Israel, every cabinet meeting, any consolation with the prime minister, always starting with the intel. Everything in Israel is based on intel. And because the intelligence was in such a, let's say, status over here, everybody thought the intelligence would give us the ultimate answer. Something went wrong between the intelligence and the operational um, forces, meaning the IDF. Meaning, if the intelligence is uh, missing something, and no doubt they screw up completely in October 7, the concentration should be with the operational forces of the IDF. And over here, we haven't seen it at also. So we needed this slap in a way, and we pay heavy price for that. And the consequences on Israel will be, I don't know, tremendous over here. We'll need to debrief ourselves, to investigate ourselves, to change some in the national security agenda that we used to have in the last 20 years to change something in a very profound way. We'll have to learn from that. In a way, it's very similar to what happened in Americans after September 11. Although you know, October 7, in Israeli terms, it's uh, on a bigger scale than, October, than September 11. I think that's right. I remember Joe Biden saying that too, that it was like 29-11s proportionally. Exactly. Uh, and, you've, and you've spoken about the, um, the trauma. Um, the International Court of Justice and the judgment, the interim provisional measures they made last week, because uh, I said at the beginning that you've been in the room for years when these big discussions and big decisions are taken. One thing I've always wanted to know is, to what extent, when planners and decision makers are taking those decisions, to what extent do they think of, well, partly a body like the International Court of Justice, but even actually just world opinion, how things will look? Does anybody ever think that? Or if you raise that in, in a meeting, are you just the sort of soft-centered liberal who no one listens to. And I'm thinking of, the, for example, this raid in, in Jenin in the hospital where it seems undercover, it hasn't been denied, undercover Israeli officers dressed as doctors and civilians killed three targets, again, not denied actually, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad targets in the hospital. But of course, outrage around the world at violating the norm that says it's a hospital, but also, you know, posing as medical staff days after the ICJ. If you were thinking about how that looks and how that's going to play on the front of the New York Times and so on, I wonder if the decision would be any different. But even prior to that, I'm just curious in the room, does anybody ever say, hmm, guys, I'm not sure the optics of that are great. Should we think again about that? Maybe not do it this week. Or does nobody ever say that? It's a different uh, question, I think. And I will give you an answer for both of them, but it's not going 
I'm not going to hook them like you've done in the in the question. Whether somebody is doing it in a room all the time. In Israel, it's a very, very, let's say, free conversation in the room, meaning if somebody from the executive in the security echelon have an opinion regarding something, you have the ability, you have the room, you have the uh, opportunity to say whatever he thinks regarding this issue. Now you have to understand from moral point of view, we don't need not the cabinet, not the government. We have the education we are getting at home. We all went to an officer course. And when you're an officer, you have a code of an officer. And uh, over here, Israel, when the, the fights that we conduct all over the years, we need to have a moral standard over here. First of all, because we are a democratic country and we have our own codes and virtues. That's how our parents taught us at home, and that's what we're teaching our children. So I don't need somebody in the room that will tell me what is moral and what not. The other issue, if somebody is forgetting, always there is somebody to remind. And if all of us are forgetting, always there will be a guy probably from uh, the legal advisor or something like that will say, hey, guys, you have to think about it one more time. Regarding your question, regarding the Jenin operation or something like that, hey, guys, this is a rough neighborhood. I mean, whenever you're turning every day, the fact that you hear that Israel is flourishing and we have like 52,000 dollars per capita and our economy is doing great and we're OCD country and we are part of the high-tech community around the world, that is great. But 24-7, 365 days, there are so many bad guys that want to take Israel down, take the Jewish people around the world down, uh, anti-Semitism, and uh, we have a lot of bad guys over here that really, really don't like the fact that we are living in this neighborhood starting with the Hezbollah in the north, going uh, to the Palestinians in the West Bank, going to Syria, going to Iran that want to eliminate the states of Israel with the nuclear capabilities, going to Sinai with Daesh, going to Gaza, what we saw in October 7. Now, we have to do and to conduct this combat uh, regarding counterterrorism in a very creative way. Now, if the Palestinians are using, if the Hamas is using schools and classrooms as a shield and as they use hospitals to take our hostages over there as the footage that was revealed just show recently, there is no limits over here. Now, it will be tragic and devastating if, God forbid, we will hear it, uh, civilians that are not involved. But if you're going for the bad guys over here, Guys, at the war, it's like in a war, and we have to protect our own people. So before we are taking and asking ourselves, first of all, we have to prevent terrorism in order to hit our families. How to do it smartly, surgically, and in a way brilliantly, like the operation that they have done yesterday? This is a different question. But know that we have to deliver security at the same time to keep and to be moral with a high standard and um, not to hurt civilians. On, on that topic of tremendous challenges, Iran and its involvement in general, I mean, obviously you have been very involved in the attempts uh, to prevent Iran becoming a nuclear power. I'm actually trying to focus on what it is doing in the region right now. Is it on board with everything? Would it want Hezbollah to open a war right now with Israel? What is the logic of what Iran is trying to do? I mean, obviously, if you wanted to, you know, bring Israel on its knees, you would give Hezbollah the order to start a war on October 8th, uh, which they didn't. So I'm trying to understand, I mean, specifically about the Northern Front, but just generally about Iran's plans at this time as you as you read them. First of all, we have to be frank and to say that Iranians, sadly, I'm saying it, are doing good in the last couple of years. The Biden administration came with an agenda that he uh, drew a year before they win the elections in order to go back to an agreement with the Iranians to try to ease the pressure with Iran. After three and something years, I'm not sure that they succeed so much. This is one. Secondly, the Iranians are doing good all over the region, doing good by their own standard. If they decide right now to block all the naval transportation around the, the Red Sea, they're doing it with the Houthis. By the way, those Houthis, five years, six years ago, just used to have MKAK-47 
and some camels, and this is it. In two years, they have cruise missiles, uh, advanced weapon systems. From where? From Iran. First time that you have a foothold of the Iranians in the Gulf. Used to launch outstanding and outrageous attack against the Saudis in uh, September 14, 2019. In two and a half hours, they killed almost 50% of the oil production of the Saudis. With what response from the international community? Nothing. In uh, 21 and 22, massive attacks against Abu Dhabi and the Emirates. What was the answer? Nothing. Just killed, and it's devastating, three American soldiers just a couple of days ago in the border uh, between Jordan and Syria. Response so far? Nothing. Using the Shia militias in Iraq, in Syria, in order to destabilize all the region, um, supporting Hezbollah, as Yunit mentioned before, more than 120,000 rockets all over Israel, 24-7. Since October 7, fighting shoulder to shoulder with the Hamas, back up the Hamas. We need to evacuate as Israeli, dozens of thousands of Israeli from all the northern border. Imagine to yourself that a free country like uh, one of the European countries, all United States, will have to evacuate because of a border dispute thousands of people from their own land. And they are not living right now in their homes because Hezbollah are launching anti-tank missiles straight to their homes in the north. Now, the Iranians are continuing to build the nuclear, the military nuclear program. They have some really impressive material for 60%. And as you know, 60%, this is a no time from 90% to enrich uranium, meaning the Iranians are doing good. Now, they gained $10 billion extra in the last year from oil because the sanctions are not really working right now. The Europeans and the Americans are completely hooked to the Ukraine-Russian conflict. They are really concerned also from China and Taiwan. And Iran is not the first priority right now of no one. And that's a reason that we see that the Middle East is uh, right now going wild. That's why we see that Bill Burns said whatever he said uh, yesterday in a foreign affairs uh, piece, or Mr. Blinken just say that uh, this is the worst uh, time since 73, a couple of days ago, if I remember correctly. Meaning the American mm. concern because the Middle East and mainly the Iranian are consuming a lot of intention from the international community. That's where we are. You mentioned, this may have to be our last question, but you mentioned there obviously the Americans. I think I heard there some criticism between the lines of America's failure so far as we speak to have reacted to the killing of three U.S soldiers joe biden has said he will do something but he hasn't uh, you know it hasn't happened yet he'll see he says he'll do it at a time of his choosing what do you think happens if biden as some say is likely to happen loses in november and there is a second trump presidency in terms of the middle east in terms of israel israel one of the few countries in the world where actually trump is quite popular in in, in opinion poll ratings but in terms of the impact it will have on Israel and the region, what do you think a change in American leadership would bring? So if I was, um, if somebody understood that I was uh, criticized the American, so I really don't. Because as I mentioned before, I think that the American uh, priority right now, and I'm not judgmental over here, is not the Iranian issue. That's why I'm not criticizing. And I used to have a very interesting conversation one day with their former chairman, uh, General Milley that said, uh, guys, we have commander-in-chief and he gave us uh, the instruction what to do and what not. And uh, I'm not going to pick a fight about every, I don't know, clash that somebody is trying to drag America into a conflict. And I remember very carefully that Americans in the last 20 years have been uh, uh, engaged in uh, large campaigns in Iraq, in Afghanistan, all over the Middle East, and the Americans are a bit fatigued after two decades of fighting uh, wars in the Middle East. I remember it and I respect it. But over here, I'm saying always to the Americans, okay, guys, you're a bit fatigued and you're a bit tired, so go back home, just switch batteries and go back, because there is no substitute to the Americans. When the Americans are leaving a spot, there is not a good I don't know, good entities that are coming and trying to replace and to take the place of America. Going back to your question regarding, listen, you have to understand that 
the Israeli national security relying on the friendship with the Americans. The fact that we're independents, we're taking uh, the decisions, we're doing the job because our boys and our girls are in the cockpits or in the tanks, that's great and we're so proud about it that we never ask from the American to do the job for us. After I'm saying that, the bond between us and the Americans is so profound that I'm not so concerned about who will be the president of America. No doubt that Joe Biden was a true, he was amazing. The day after October 7 in his speech, how he stood with all of us, how he said the don't, how we came for seven hours visit over here. We saw it, we remember it, we cherish it. I think that this is something that um, it was amazing. At the same time, as I'm saying, uh, we have an experience with American presidents. For Israel, the most important issue is the bipartisan. Whether you are Democrats, whether you're Republicans, we want to see the public opinion in America. And the public opinion is mainly reflecting in the Congress. When you have 400 and something uh, congressmen that are voting for the states of Israel, and you have 90 something senators that are voting with the states of Israel, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, I leave it to the Americans. We like to see the Americans shoulder to shoulder with us, and we promise to be a democratic country that will share the same virtues as the Americans, and we're not going to move an inch from the same values that we are sharing. And if somebody would try to move this needle, you saw what happened in the last year in the streets of Israel, and we are very proud about that. Yeah, it's it. Uh, I appreciate the fact you didn't want to get into the American political quagmire. Ours is complicated enough. Um, Zal, thank you so much uh, for talking to us. Uh, you made us smarter. And thanks, uh, thanks so much for being on Unholy. Thank you so much for hosting. Good to see you guys. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Very good to hear from uh, Zohar Palti, like we said, somebody who has been in the room where these decisions are made. I think it was sobering and very useful to hear how he sees these things, uh, that it is a hallucination to talk about two states uh, right now. Interesting, coming in the week when Britain's Foreign Secretary David Cameron, former Prime Minister, is saying that Britain would like to move forward, perhaps, with recognising a Palestinian state in order to accelerate moves to a two-state solution, there is a voice from someone who knows saying that the, it is uh, hallucinatory to be talking in that way in the immediate term. So a sobering conversation with Zohar Palti. Yes, and I think it's also really fascinating to listen to someone who really for decades, you said it and, and you said it accurately, was in the room when those decisions were made. How do Israelis think? How do Israelis that are part of this, of the Mossad, of the defense echelon, the intelligence community, how they think, how they see things? I think it's really fascinating. Uh, and Zohar's insights are always uh, interesting to listen to, whether they're in English or in Hebrew. But it is time for our um, mentioned Chutzpah Awards. It Would is. Would you want to begin? I, I am. I think a worthy return to the uh, Chutzpah Award winner's podium for one prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I know we've spoken about him this week already. But he gave an interview with Douglas Murray, who is a right, pretty right-wing uh, commentator, essayist, writer, uh, who has been doing a whole lot of reporting for Talk TV, which um, he has a pretty small audience. It's owned by Rupert Murdoch. It's the, sh it's the channel which airs the Piers Morgan show. He gave an interview with Douglas Murray. And there he said that he alone had long been of the mind that Hamas had to be destroyed and not empowered against the policy of one B. Netanyahu, by the way. Uh, but unfortunately and sadly, he was prevented by others. He says, my conclusion was that we had to continuously cut these wild weeds. But sad to say, we couldn't get the domestic consensus to make such a definitive solution. I mean, this is rewriting history on an epic scale. It was Netanyahu who said to his fellow Likud members in 2019, if you want to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state, then you have to back Hamas. This was his strategy. And now he's saying, no, no, privately, I really wanted to destroy Hamas. Unfortunately, it was those other pesky kids who prevented me from doing it. I think that is a barefaced chutzpah and so a worthy winner to Israel's Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu. 
If I can just summarize this in the words of Reshef Shai, who writes for Eretz Nederet, Israel's leading satire program. He wrote this on Twitter. I'll translate it from Hebrew to English. Bibi has been warning against his policies for 15 years, <laughs> and no one listened. So I think, <laughs> I think that sums it up that's quite it. well. That's exactly it. I mean, it's one of those, you know, wait till Netanyahu hears about this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> it is highly memeable. It did make, uh, definitely make the waves here in Israel. Mensch of the week can yeah. only go, I think, to one person. Idan Amedi. Anyone in Israel knows who I'm talking about. Outside Israel, maybe less. Idan Amedi is a singer. He's an actor. He plays in Fauda. He has been severely injured in Gaza, and he, this uh, week, after weeks of being in the hospital, actually managed to be released. He's feeling much better. He has become somewhat of a hero for Israelis, not only in the fact, I mean, we keep talking about this, Jonathan, but Israel being the conscript army, this is a huge celebrity in the country. He goes to fight this war, right? It's not people who say, you know what, I'm ex exempt because I'm too famous, too busy, too rich, whatever. He went to fight. He was severely injured uh, along with his friends. And he came out to the cameras, obviously still, you know, injured, saying, you need to give soldiers time. You need to give them time to recuperate. Uh, it's very important. The unity in this country is very important. He said, people tell me I'm a hero and a symbol. I'm just like everyone. I want to be an ambassador for those who have been injured. Everyone in this country, really, I don't know if the right word was swooning over this, but really just very emotional by the way that he was carrying himself and by what he was saying, the sort of message of, you know, this is the Israel we want to be, the heroic, the one talking about camaraderie, the one talking about unity. You know, many Israelis were very, very um, inspired by this. So we have our Mensch and our Chutzpah Award winners. Um, next week, we would like, with your help, to do something we have done once before, and very fruitful it was too, which is to hear uh, your questions. Uh, we would like you to write in and send in Questions, you can do that via Instagram or Facebook at Unholy Podcast. Uh, but there is another way you can do that too. You go to this website, www.speakpipe.com slash unholy. That's www.speakpipe.com slash unholy. It says record your message. You hit record and record your message. Please don't make it longer than 90 seconds, ideally shorter than 60 seconds, so we can play your question in full. We will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Omer Barak. See you next week, Jonathan. See you then, Yonin.